Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? My mustache is looking so freaking powerful. It's kind of disgusting. Yeah, I've actually started to really enjoy my beard. Uh, it's really itchy, but it's actually now just a beard now rather than just being unshaven face. And I'm kind of kind of into it now. Guys, if you haven't been watching us on YouTube, you're really missing out on this nice Mario stash. But <laughs> if you haven't heard, we are fundraising for the Movember Foundation this month of November. We're growing our mustaches and our beards in order to raise awareness for men's health, and you can donate. We have already rounded up over $600 in super, super generous donations, like way more than I could have ever imagined. So thank you for everyone who's already donated. But we have addresses inside the show notes, also on our Twitter page, that you can send Ethereum to or Bitcoin to. And we're turning this into a little bit of a game. If you send Bitcoin to me, then you're kind of voting for the BTC side of the podcast. If you send Ether or other Ethereum-based assets to the ETH address, you're kind of voting for the ETH side of the podcast. And whoever raises, whichever side raises more money, either David or I, the opposite host, will have to donate to a cryptocurrency-focused nonprofit the difference, right? So if it's $200 or if it's $700 in the BTC bucket and $500 in the ETH bucket, David has to donate $200 to BTC Pay Server. If it's vice versa uh, and Ethereum receives $700 in assets and Bitcoin only receives $500, uh, Christian is going to send $200 to me and I'll spread those out across Gitcoin grants. So uh, you're either donating to Movember, which is a good cause, or some nonprofit crypto development uh, uh, fund. You are donating to both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're donating to both. So we're trying to make it fun. I think it's cool. Um, and we're killing it already. My goal is a thousand now. I don't care which side wins. I would love to raise a thousand dollars, uh, just to see what our community has. So let's go guys. Let's, <laughs> this is a long intro about our fundraiser, but I think it deserves it. Another company that deserves an intro is eToro. They've been supporting us for a couple months now and they're committed to supporting us for, uh, through Q1 of next year. So super generous of them. And they have been one of the coolest companies to spread awareness about Bitcoin um, at a bunch of company or a bunch of conferences. They have like cartoon Bitcoins around and they're doing WTF is Bitcoin and a bunch of stuff like that. Um, and they're also supporting a ton of content creators, uh, POV Crypto, a bunch of other podcasts on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network, a bunch of podcasts just in the space in general. Um, and they're supporting people in the United States and around the globe with really fun and cool trading products like their copy trader. Really, you know, they make it super easy to invest in crypto and Bitcoin the way that you want in a very kind of intuitive interface. So check them out. Give us credit by using link b.tc backslash eToro POV. b.tc backslash eToro POV. Let's tell them about our next sponsor. Yeah, Celsius Network is the newest lending platform on the scene. You can download their app at celsius.network. Uh, if you use P uh, code POV, you get $10 in Bitcoin on signup. Uh, so go check out their rates at celsius.network because they're like pretty, pretty strong rates. Uh, I'm looking at them right now, 3.75% for your Bitcoin, 3.4% for your Ether. Uh, and then there's even more like esoteric assets like uh, 0x, Zcash, Dash, Gemini dollar, the, the rates are pretty insane. So like 8.2% for both Gemini dollar and Paxos dollar. 
uh, almost 6% uh, for your die. Uh, and so these rates are, are definitely better than what you can get in DeFi right now. Uh, and today is Friday, November 22nd. And so anyone who's lending out on Celsius Network was receiving really awesome rates instead of losing 10% because the crypto markets took a shit today. So if you want to stop losing all of your money, you can go and to, to Celsius Network and lend it out uh, through their app. So if you want, are interested in trading your contract risk from DeFi and putting it into centralization risk with Celsius, uh, I, we re definitely recommend Celsius Network. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy. Like, if you are super cypherpunk or whatever, and you don't want to touch centralized institution, then that's cool. But uh, if you just are looking for yield, you know, it Celsius is a great tool in the tool chest. When DeFi is paying out, you go there. When it's not, you know, it's just another tool. So um, I, I'm happy that both eToro and Celsius are sponsoring the show. And I'm really stoked about this episode. We got Bitcoin sign guy on the show. Uh, he goes by, he also is known as Christian. Uh, but Bitcoin sign guy uh, is the legendary person behind the, the meme of a person holding a sign saying buy Bitcoin um, at a Fed meeting or a, uh, it, it, was, it was some sort of Fed meeting with Janet Yellen there. So it's just Janet Yellen and right behind her, it says buy Bitcoin. Everyone has seen the meme. It has gone way past the crypto community. Honestly, Christian has been very relevant. You know, he, he is a a really smart guy. He's been on a ton of different podcasts. He knows a lot about Bitcoin and he has stumbled down the Urbit rabbit hole and actually works for Urbit now. He came onto the pod to tell us a little bit about himself, about what he thinks about crypto and the crypto enabled future and where he sees Urbit fitting into that. And he tried to explain it. I think this is a more simple podcast. There was a, a couple of other podcasts that he did, one with Nick Carter that kind of got into more of the details of what Urbit is. I think this is more high level, how to use it, why would you use it, um, all that good stuff. I really enjoyed this pod and I hope to get Christian and Bitcoin sign guy back on the show again. Yeah, Urbit is really interesting because it's so similar to the cryptocurrency industry, but it's really just not about cryptocurrency at all. It's kind of like our cousin or sister industry. And so it's about cryptography. Uh, it's about distributed systems. But I also think the most uh, relevant uh, category that we share with the Urbit world is the descent tech uh, industry, which we're definitely talking about more and more. And so Urbit fits into the world of like being able to opt out from the systems that we have today and using a new system that kind of runs in parallel with being a sovereign individual. Uh, so that's why I really liked this interview uh, with with Christian, aka Bitcoin Sign Guy. Uh, so it, it takes a little bit of work to wrap your mind around what Urbit is, but I think you can kind of get the gist after listening to this episode. So without further ado, Bitcoin Sign Guy. All right, guys, I'm super excited to bring you a very special guest, uh, fellow Christian. Bitcoin sign guy. Welcome to POV Crypto. How's it going? Ahoy. Thanks for having me, guys, at your what, service. What, what brings you to the show? We, we wanted to talk about a couple of different things. I guess, I guess we could start with your story. What brings me to the show? I guess Bitcoin, ultimately, uh, eventually. <laughs> I guess I have been on the podcast circuit for a little while. Shout out to Marty Bent, popping my podcast cherry way back. Uh, he was he was the first person to get me to talk about uh, the Bitcoin sign, the buy Bitcoin sign, and then it's been just a, a cavalcade of comedy ever since. Yeah, wait. So actually, let's let's talk about this this story a little bit. Sure. I'm sure 
everyone in the audience has seen uh, the famous meme of a dude holding a buy Bitcoin sign behind Janet Yellen. <laughs> I... I, I don't know. You tell me. Yeah. I mean, that's you, man. <laughs> I, I, I can't uh, – I don't have a, the perspective of, a, of an impartial observer <laughs> on that meme. So <laughs> you, you tell me. I was on my way up to record this, uh, record this and I turned to my roommate and I go, you know that picture of the, the guy holding up a buy Bitcoin sign behind Janet Yellen? And he goes, oh, yeah, totally. I know that picture. And he's not a crypto person at all. So <laughs> you're, you're famous outside of crypto as well. Uh, thank you. I mean, hopefully, hopefully Bitcoin will be famous outside of Bitcoin, right? <laughs> I think it already is. I always get in fights with Trey Dado about is Bitcoin a household name. I mean, yeah, this is what I this is my thought when I uh, when I'm just dissociating, driving around the city. It's like you look at people on the sidewalk, and you just imagine them being a Bitcoiner. And sometimes you see people, and you re- it really sort of strains belief if they're going to become you know a, a digital currency user in the next five or ten years. I mean. It's it's something that I think Bitcoin has to really work through is just being accessible for every person. So before you were a Bitcoin sign guy, who were you? I was a twerp uh, from Connecticut. Wanted to work in financial services my whole life. Uh, really idolized a lot of the fiduciary, like investment management professionals around uh, where I grew up, and so I started out through high school and college pursuing internships at investment banks, uh, hedge funds, investment shops of all stripes. And then it was really through those experiences that I could not, I, I got a bad taste in my mouth, if you will, for uh, the, the monetary <laughs> status quo. Uh, it, it, as much as I tried, I could not reconcile it with the, my understanding of free markets and, and sound money. And so the more I saw distortions, monetary distortions in markets, uh, the more I became disillusioned. And that's what ultimately pushed me toward studying Bitcoin and investing personally. So what was the immediate fallout from the Bitcoin sign guy uh, meme? What, uh, what, sure. what happened? Well, I was uh, I was working in Washington D.C. at the time at a free market think tank, uh, which maintains relationships with lawmakers and uh, policy policy makers. So it it doesn't benefit them much to have one of their employees disrupt a hearing as I did. So I I soon departed <laughs> my my job there, but. Uh, I was fortunate enough to meet a lot of Bitcoiners through the through that process and ultimately made my way to San Francisco working at a a crypto fund uh and then after that found my way you know through the broader space of dissident digital technologies and that's pretty much where I sit now so the Bitcoin sign guy event uh, got you a job in crypto? Is that what I just heard? Uh, I wouldn't say it directly did, but it was, it was a step in the path. It certainly, it, it certainly uh, 
was something that they recognized <laughs> in my interview. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about this concept of like dissident internet technologies, but I also want to talk about you being a Bitcoiner in San Francisco. I'm also a Bitcoiner in San Francisco, and I feel like there's a lot of disdain for, for SF. What do you think about this city, and does it have any redeeming qualities? Oh, interesting. Uh, well, San Francisco, in the words of John Mouse, it's a the city on the edge of forever. Uh, you know, everyone's got their big-brained thinks about technology and the future. And I feel like in perhaps contrast to this, Bitcoin has a more humanitarian mission. It favors stasis. It favors uh, conservation in in a place where, uh, you know, it's all about disruption in San Francisco. So, yeah, I think that perhaps in some ways there is a conflict of the Bitcoin mindset or ethos and that of San Francisco. But I, I've enjoyed the time <laughs> uh, I've spent living here. Uh, I probably will return to my corner of the country sooner or later. Uh, I don't plan on staying here. Uh, I need to re-territorialize, as Deleuze would, would say. I think that there was a study of like millennials specifically in San Francisco and other countries, or not countries, other cities asking them, you know, would they consider living uh, in the city that they live in for the next 5, 10, 20 years? And over 25% of people in San Francisco said that they would be leaving in the next five years. Right. So it's a I, difficult place to stay I for mean, long. sure. I do think that people uh, – the, there is a perennial overstatement, however, about – Oh, I'm if you know Donald Trump wins the election, I'm getting up and moving to Canada. Well, you know what? Nobody moved to Canada, uh, so I do think that people exaggerate that, and uh, you know maybe it's it's sad, but I think you do get used to you know the some of the peculiarities of living in San Francisco rather quickly. Um, but yeah, is it is it a a place that can sustain itself? Uh, psychically, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a city where everyone is just sprinting, and then you kind of just see once you're once you're done sprinting, you kind of see how far you went, and then you know decide if you want to keep sprinting or not. Right. I mean, I do. I do think that it's there are some great vistas every morning in San Francisco uh, on my drive to work. The passing through Civic Center and the Tenderloin. You get these streets where it's a block and it has it's lined with homeless people and also the the young yuppie zoomers on their electric scooters wearing helmets, you know, racing off to to get their company funded and become a, an owner of you know unicorn equity. So I, I find it pretty poetic uh, and a, a an, uh, an amusing just juxtaposition definitely i mean i guess you know kind of talking about that and talking about like a weird dystopian futuristic city always in the future let's talk about like this kind of dystopian or not dystopian but this uh uh resistance dark web freedom technology sure uh so yeah i i i honestly heard that word only for the first time 
the other day if Preston Burns said it, dissident tech. Uh, and there was a report. Oh, darn. Uh, his, his name was Phil, I think. You can look it up. Um, uh, Phil, I, I apologize. I can't re- recall your last name. But um, the it's it's sort of a a technological response to surveillance capitalism. So it's technology that respects your privacy, the sovereignty of your data, uh, and perhaps you could call it the sanctity of the user experience. Are we talking about Urbit? Well, Urbit I would include in the in the constellation of dissident tech, yes. But I mean, it it goes beyond it goes beyond uh, just uh, computers in sort of a, like a software sense. It's even it it can even include stuff like com tech. Like, have you ever seen the light phone? Just the, it's, yeah. it's just a it's literally like going back to a Nokia brick phone. It, all it does is it has an e-ink screen, looks like a Kindle, and it just has a cell phone text. A clock with an alarm and contacts, and it—it's all it does. And so, the—I think that technologists in this area realized a while ago that they can basically program their technological platforms in a way that keep users using them. Right. That. And this is sort of how all. All this tech is valued, daily active users, eyeballs, clicks, whatever it is. It's all sort of some some proxy for how much time are you getting out of your uh, user. And so to the extent that this disrespects a user, you know, I think that there's also a case to be made that dissident tech encompasses softwares and hardwares that are for that, – that, Respect the time and the the, like the the property of the user. There's that one Sam Harris uh, episode, super old, but it was from an old Google ethics engineer who is basically redu- when what you get when you reduce Snapchat and Instagram and anything with a push notification on it. Uh, it's it, when you reduce it, it goes down to just basically a competition for your uh, attention in the form of like a, uh, a kind of a slot machine where like when you open up Snapchat or Instagram, like you're hoping to like see something really cool, but like sometimes you don't and sometimes you do, but every time you do, it reinforces the behavior of opening it up and capturing right. your attention. Yeah. It's a, it's a dopamine dispensary mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, exactly. I, so I use my phone and, uh, if you have the latest iPhone, you can set it to smart invert and then layer grayscale over that. And basically, you can – you'd be surprised at how much less you want to look at your phone when it's dark and with no colors on it. So there's huh. no – the little red bubble, for example. Right. I mean, that's a dopamine trigger, basic one. Play any of those free games and, you know, they're always – every five seconds, they give you, you know, a free coin to spend on the thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. it's all just meant to – bombard your brain with uh, you know a feeling of accomplishment a feeling that you're being uh, you know paid attention to but really it's just meant to to hold your to hold your attention and keep you mm-hmm. on the platform so how does urbit fit into this conversation sure so i guess from from many angles 
as the the computer is really about the broadest uh, consumer technology we have today. You can summarize Urbit perhaps as a computer that doesn't program you. That might give a an opportunity to explain some more of the features about Urbit, and then that also explains some of the function of Urbit. So minimalism is really the theme with Urbit, uh, not only in interface, but also in the infrastructure itself. So the Urbit uh, kernel is only about 50,000 lines of code. The the language that it uh, compiles to knock is it only has 12 opcodes the opcodes for x86 64 bit it's like 4000 so it's it's a rigorously minimal uh, operating system and so ultimately what this affords the user is that it's it's incredibly simple to use and operate and uh, taking that a step further, because it's easy to operate, it's easy to keep, uh, it's easy to use as a personal server. So to host your data uh, for whatever application you want. So right now we have a chat application and a blogging application on Urbit. In the future, this can be uh, you know, a full social graph, like a, a Twitter clone on Urbit, a Google Docs clone on Urbit, uh, you name it, uh, come learn Hoon, which is the language that the Urbit operating system is written in. You can you can make a, a minimal uh, version of that service with a much smaller amount of engineering effort than you know uh, a world class software team at a large tech company. Something that's pretty interesting about Urbit and other types of decentralized application platforms is this goal to kind of replace the existing Linux Unix stack. Like this kind of like we need to start over and we need to move away from this antiquated system. Yeah, so I would say Urbit, its relationship to that is like if you, what if you could look at the last 40 years of evolution of the personal computer and then, like, uh, like you're boiling down uh, like whale fat, or you're refining gold. You basically just boil it down, compress it, and uh, make it many orders of magnitude smaller. Just because you know, we now know what we didn't know when personal computers were being built, which is you know all the things that you want to use a personal computer for. We now see those. And we can, after the fact, ex post, simplify the entire technological stack that is required to to bring us those. My follow-up to kind of or continuation of the question is, like, what do you think is going to make Urbit successful at disrupting the network effects of the existing stack? Like, that, to me, it almost breaks a, a, a mental model of the you know, network effects being very, very difficult to break and you know, would need something that's a 10x, 100x. Sure. Benefit. So in terms of the, the user experience of Urbit, that is certainly the, the goal. And in many, case, in many cases, already the reality. You know, it's just easy to keep your Urbit online, to interact in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion. 
with your peers on the Urbit network for messaging, uh, and then in the future, you know, what other other services you want. Um, and then the the idea is that this is your last computer. You know, it's because it's Urbit is essentially a virtual machine. You can run it wherever you want. So you could run it in your home, on your desktop. You could run it on a cyberpunk type box, or you could uh, rent a, a virtual machine in the cloud to, to host your Urbit. But it's essentially one computer that you can take with you for the rest of your life. Whereas, uh, you know, this MacBook that we're recording on might you know, you'll you'll throw this away one day, right? And this com- this computer is not going to be you know canonical in terms of your your lifetime computing. Wait, wait. So like, when I log into this, I'm also on a MacBook, and so when I log into my MacBook, there's like my little avatar. It says David Hoffman, and I type in my password, and then it logs me in. Are you saying that? Urbit is something I can do something kind of similar to, but it doesn't matter what computer I'm logging into. Is that how it works? Well, it it will be a, a canonical event log from the moment you boot it. So it, Urbit is a is a functional computer. So everything that happens to your Urbit is essentially processed by Urbit's pure function, if you will. So uh, it it has deterministic state in that regard. And so you'll always you'll always know exactly sort of where it is, <laughs> if you will. Um, so so think of it just like uh, you know it's your Google, your G Suite, all of your Google services, uh-huh. you know, you can access them from wherever you are in the world just with your Google password. It would be like that, but you have you know, ownership of that data and not Google. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm sure there's like a, a, a deep rabbit hole that we can get into, but I kind of want to keep it shallow right now so anyone who's listening can kind of better understand. In an ideal world, I'm, use, I, I'm computing with Urbit. What does that look like from a day-to-day? Like right now, you know, open my laptop up, sign in through centralized Mac, uh, Apple ID or whatever, mm-hmm. and Google services. Like what does it look like to use Urbit? Sure. So maybe you uh, you get your Urbit address and you boot your Urbit on some VM in the cloud. So there's a, a number of companies that are gearing up to host Urbits just as their as their primary service. So maybe you pay, you know, $10 a month for this. And then that computer is accessible to you through any hardware device uh, from wherever you are in the world. And uh, ideally, it's uh, it doesn't need to be maintained actively by you because it can receive over-the-air updates uh, from, from other peers on the Urbit network. So, you know, you could go on a... A one-year <laughs> sail around the world, and you come back and you enter your master ticket uh, to access your Urbit wherever it's being run, and everything is right right where you left it. It updates and you continue, you resume. And so what? And so basically, all of the same functionalities that I would use my normal MacBook for. 
I could yeah, also use an Uber. It's the same thing. Yep, same thing. It's uh, it's a a personal computer, a, mm-hmm. a full personal computer, like a, an alternative to say Mac OS or or Windows or Linux. So where's all my data stored? Well, it depends on where your Urbit is hosted. If you run it locally on a on a computer, then it's stored on mm. on your PC. If you run it in the cloud, it's stored in the cloud. Okay. Uh, if so, you I could be it, storing it with Amazon. If you or if AWS you get a if you get a cyberpunk box, you know that that runs say like a Bitcoin node, and you run your Urbit on that, it'll it'll be on that. It's wherever mm-hmm. you uh, wherever you find most convenient. Ah, okay. So I so I have like this gaming computer that I bought that it has pretty good you know like terabytes uh, terabytes of, of storage and like super good processing power. So I could have my Urbit on that computer. And kind of leave it running in the same way that you would leave a Bitcoin or Ethereum node running. Correct. And then just yeah. have it accessible. Right. So the the insight here is that in in the mid eighties, like the personal computing revolution, it was originally it originally struck people as crazy that every person would have a personal computer in their home, right? Because everyone was using mainframes at their universities and companies. Uh, and the idea that you needed to bring something home with you, uh, it was just absurd. We're now at a point where people think it might be – everyone's accustomed to having a, a personal computer, but it's only really half the computer. It's only the client side. It's Your, your MacBook is basically a glorified web browser at this mm-hmm. point. All of the services that it accesses are hosted elsewhere. And so Urbit is your own server, essentially, that's that's simple to use and operate and and keep online. And this is really the what what brings Urbit all of its uh, you know usefulness to to people. And so tie this conversation back into how we started it, which is talking about minimalism and returning the rights of the user back to them and in terms of like privacy and and control over their device. How does, how does that all stitch together? Because you're the one that's acquiring the hosting service in this case, uh, your computing experience doesn't, it is no longer predicated on, uh, you know, some cloud, uh, company needing to justify giving you say a free service, which is, like why Google reads your emails or why, uh, why Twitter serves you advertisements. All of these, the, many of the negative parts of the internet experience as we know it today are because, well, you sort of expect using all these internet services to be free and because you're willing to look the other way on the terms and conditions, uh, you, know, you, you, you wind up with the status quo. So Urbit says, look, you actually have access to insanely cheap hardware. Uh, what's keeping you from you know, leveraging this cheap hardware that you can access and actually host your own stuff? You know, it's funny in Bitcoin, everyone wants, uh, everyone values or at least signals that they value uh, data sovereignty and uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But how many of them operate their own email server? Th- the answer is actually very few. 
because uh, despite the will and the you know the the ideological alignment or whatever to, to do so, it's technically very complicated. Uh, just because the the current internet stack is so fraught with dependencies that it, it's it's in it's an insurmountable task essentially for for one person to do all of that. So Urbit is really just like a clean slate uh, that radically simplifies the 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 input required to keep hosting of your own stuff online. So I guess what I kind of want to better understand is like why why is that going to win over the existing stack in terms of getting people to migrate, right? So like, I'm trying to think like sure. yeah, so you know, all the services are on built on the existing system. Right. Like it's going to be, take a long time to build up that amount of kind of like utility on a new system. Absolutely. As with Bitcoin, Urbit is very much in a in a bootstrapping mode. It's like why would someone shift to a new money that has not many people using it or Urbit accepting it. Urbit doesn't have number go up, though. Urbit, Urbit doesn't necessarily need number go up, and it's not really competing to be to be money at all. Urbit instead can tap into people's desire to have sovereignty over their own data. And so Nassim Taleb has that great point about the minority rule, uh, which is that a small intolerant minority can usually have an outsized impact on a larger population. So the the common example is Jews are 1% of the population, but you go to a grocery store and all the food is uh, certified kosher. Uh, so just like that, you know, you have this this growing contingent of, say, Bitcoiners and people that really do uh, are fully conscious of the ways that the cloud is screwing them. And these will be the motivated people to, to move into, uh, you know, systems like Urbit. Yes, they'll take perhaps a, a small usability and convenience hit at first, but ultimately, you know, Urbit is designed to be just as good as, you know, the cloud services that you're used to. Is Urbit kind of like Ethereum in the sense that like it depends on developers coming and building out Urbit in the same way like kind of Wikipedia depends on writers coming and adding content to it? Is that kind of a, a similar structure? I mean, developers, we were talking about this the other day, like that classic line by that Microsoft exec, developers, 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 they help. But, uh, you know, it's Urbit is simple to the point where an individual developer can make a really featured app all by themselves. Like my friend Logan, uh, you know, he rewrote the Urbit chat application basically in a weekend. So it, you need less development uh, uh, manpower than, than you think. With Urbit? With Urbit, yeah. I think that's that's all... Good, but you guys are competing against a lot of other competition. How does like, how does Urbit architecturally kind of stack up against a block stack against what people in the Ethereum community are trying to build with Web three? Like a lot of people are trying to go towards this mission. Like where does Urbit fit into that? And how does it compete? Sure. So I, 
I think that a lot of the alternative projects to have, you know, decentralized applications like fail to recognize the real core insight, which is just like a server affords you so much. Um, and being able to to run that server and own that server is is ninety percent of the battle. Like you have uh, you have Bitcoin applications, like peer to peer exchanges. I, I like to use the example of Bisk, I, and I really like Bisk, by the way. Um, but it's hard to use because it's hard to run, you know, uh, a Bisk node on your computer. Uh, when I when I run Bisk, my computer sounds like a jet engine and to keep my orders online, you know, I have to keep my computer up and it's just a, a general bad experience. So it, the, the basics is like make, make running a, a personal server really easy and the, the rest will sort of fall into place. Uh, Blockstack's approach is doing it, but on existing centralized, uh, cloud services so like i think it's like you know store your app data in a dropbox or a google drive or something like that and personally i don't think that that uh reaches that that doesn't come close to overcoming the ability of those large centralized services to to control what you do how about can I compare and contrast that to the Web three Ethereum vision? Uh, I mean, I don't think anyone. I mean, I'm a Bitcoin maximalist, right? So please discount what I'm about to say with like that I'm by the fact that I'm a a, a heavy Bitcoin partisan. But I'm not sure that there's that many people using that. It's like you can make you can make an app, but like so what is it easy for people to get to it to use it is it nested in a user environment that other applications can can connect easily with so i think that when you have an entire operating system built around uh minimal and simple uh you know peer to peer networking it's uh it's a better starting point do you consider, do you think that Urbit is going to actually deliver real peer-to-peer applications? Well, it already has. Uh, you can you can get on Urbit today, <laughs> um, and yeah, obviously they're not uh, they're not entirely mature. The network has a long way to go to mature, but you know, Urbit is not uh, is not vaporware. It it truly exists. It, there are no uh, you know scaling large scaling roadblocks that it faces. You know, it, it's a, a literal functional computer. So if we wanted to run decentralized Twitter, that would be a, a one of many apps that could be run on Urbit, right? That's correct, yes. Okay. And so you would host your own tweets or come up with some other arrangement to have someone else host your tweets, but it would be, mm-hmm. you know, under a specific agreement uh, and you know you would have you would have control over that aspect. Do you see this as like a Twitter open source protocol on Urbit, or do you see this as like a company that is building a Twitter experience on Urbit that essentially plugs into Urbit's server model? It would look more like an Urbit, like a protocol that's written in Hoon, which is the the language that the Urbit uh, 
operating system is written in. So I, unless someone else decides to monetize it themselves, you know, it, most, most applications now are just being built open source uh, for, for any Urbit user to, to deploy as they see fit. So you can actually learn to write this language, learn to hoon. That's the meme. You can be the six-week hooner <laughs> and get up and running uh, writing writing Hoon uh, through the Hoon School, which is a program that uh, Talon, one of the companies developing Urbit, runs. So, yeah, you can go to urbit.org slash Hoon School and sign up for that. I was not a coder before Hoon School, and now I can Hoon. <laughs> So uh, a lot of experienced coders will say, oh, well, syntactically it's very different from things I've seen before. But, you know, once you adjust to it, it's pretty simple. And for someone who's brand new to coding, you know, it seems very intuitive and obvious anyway. So is the reason why Urbit is in the conversation nowadays, like it doesn't really seem too cryptocurrency focused. It seems like it's got uh, cryptography and distributed systems. Um, but in terms of its overlap with the cryptocurrency world, it seems like that's just the, it's mainly those two types of, uh, and maybe like self-sovereignty. And so maybe sure. our ideals are more aligned, but in terms of actually being a cryptocurrency thing, it's, it's not at all relevant to the world of cryptocurrencies, right? It's relevant insofar as you use your computer to engage in digital, like commerce that is bound digitally, right? So, my project is, as a Bitcoiner, my very much my crusade is to expand the functionality of Bitcoin on Urbit. So, you know, if you want to have it in meme form, it's that sound money deserves a sound computer. If you're using Bitcoin, which is a digital currency, well, you need some type of uh, digital system to manipulate that. Uh, and compared to... Uh, comparing Urbit with, you know, a hardware wallet that you shit your pants every time you plug into your computer and you type in your pin, you know, I would, I would favor the, the user experience of having an operating system that has affordances for, you know, Bitcoin directly baked in at the OS level. So how does Urbit do that? So currently, we are developing a Bitcoin node uh, JSON RPC API. So you'll be able to control a Bitcoin node from your Urbit. And then in the future, we're considering adding Bitcoin uh, to our to our kernel itself. So it will be Bitcoin will literally be a part of the operating system. Uh, and so you know you. You boot up your Urbit, and it should be like one click. You hit the start menu, and it's like, oh, would you like to start syncing your Bitcoin node? You're running a server anyways. Might may as well serve the Bitcoin blockchain. And 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 as an aside, by the way, that's the the whole Bitcoin run a node thing is really like run a Bitcoin server. It's Bitcoin that I think has uh, struck the consciousness of the need to operate your own server and the server being a means to have uh, sovereignty in a, in a virtual environment. 
So if you're going to integrate Bitcoin into Urbit by default, aren't you kind of just making a subjective political decision to to integrate Bitcoin? Like, wouldn't it wouldn't Urbit be more neutral if it didn't have any cryptocurrency integrated? I guess it would be more neutral, but it's by objective criteria that we selected Bitcoin to be the first project that we integrated, and then also the the spec for the uh, the integration it applies fairly analogously to other proof of work coins. So I guess you could object to Bitcoin being the biggest and most liquid cryptocurrency, but we don't really find that to be a controversial thing to assert. So when you say that you're going to build Bitcoin into Urbit, does that mean like you're going to write a Bitcoin client, like a a Hoon Bitcoin uh, client or are you gonna like how are you gonna integrate Bitcoin? So directly? right now it's it's with a an RPC uh, a JSON RPC API. So you have a, a Bitcoin node running uh, running locally, and your Urbit can just make specific calls to that. Uh, and so the you can just speak sp- Urbit can speak the language of the node. Ultimately, yeah, it would be a lot better to have. Uh, you know, some specific element of our interpreter or something like that be able to, uh, you know, understand, you know, the, the full Bitcoin, the full Bitcoin node. So maybe that would be an implementation much like much down the line. But the, the idea is to make it uh, simple to uh, just have that Bitcoin node as a as a developer primitive that's on hand so that any other application you run can use it. So beyond just a a Bitcoin full node, say you want to run a Lightning node, uh, you have a Lightning node running on your Urbit, then you have Urbit Twitter, you could add a monetization layer where, you know, you pay someone a Satoshi if you like their Urbit tweet or whatever you want to call that, uh, if you want to like their thread. So you, you see how once you have these libraries at the OS level, it becomes you know, very interesting the ways that you can combine them to make, I don't know, whatever type of monetization scheme for whatever application you're building. So is Urbit infrastructure kind of similar to blockchain infrastructure in the sense that it doesn't actually exist anywhere? And it'll, so in the future, we're hoping that it will also exist everywhere, as in the Urbit network will be like in your homes and in your offices and just like ubiquitously everywhere. Is that kind of how Urbit works? I, I'm not sure what you mean. I mean, Urbit is a... Like there's, no, like there's no headquarters, right? There's, it's, there's not, it's not oh, any, there's not any oh, central like, Urbit. Like is, like is Urbit decentralized yeah. in its mm-hmm. development? I mean that's certainly the goal. Not, we not have, necessarily in its in its development, but more of just like, uh, like the if you wanted to point to where Bitcoin is on a map, you wouldn't be able to do that. And so that's also true with Urbit, right? Right. Yeah. There there is no geographic locus of Urbit now. There's the there's Talon, which leads development on Urbit, but you know Talon. There are many open source contributors that don't work here, and uh, beyond beyond that, uh, you know, you can run Urbit and you know never interact with us. <laughs> I mean, it's it's truly your computer. You can you can run it as as you see fit. 
it's just a protocol, right? So so long as you are obeying the protocol rules, then you're part of the network. Is that is that kind of how it works? Uh, I mean it it has it has a networking protocol called mm. AIMS, um, but it's it's a it's a full computer, so it, it has its own kernel. Um, so it's like you could there's no being in or out of consensus, you know, if you were just running a computer with no networking. I guess like let's kind of talk about, you know, where where you kind of see this going into the future and have wait, I guess to prerequisite this question, have you read The Sovereign Individual? <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> uh fully no. no but but i mean yeah it's i i know the memes you know the memes i know the i know the, like, me- okay, I know the do, meme do you kind of like do you kind of see that that like sovereign individual vision and where do you see like urbit as being a part of that or enabling that uh i mean i do think that urbit prioritizes yeah the the individual member of like urbit as a as a network to to exit relationships that it uh, that it doesn't like, uh, you know, you're never you're never held to network with people against your will on Urbit. Uh, so it is it is very much a back to the land type computing <laughs> uh, computing movement. So, what are some like success metrics that you guys are looking for in like one year, or five year, ten years? I mean, obviously, we'd like to see more people using the network uh and then beyond that uh you know we can it's it's interesting there's there's not that many metrics beyond that that we can really like track uh i mean we have our own urbit servers running here and we can see how many events those are processing so we can see from our point of view that uh, uh, activity on the network is growing, but ultimately it's, it's like, uh, you know, I guess how many people are using Urbit is, is the main one. Uh, hopefully, hopefully we eventually hear of people who can migrate fully into Urbit that don't need to, uh, have their, have alternative computers. If, if you start hearing stories about people using Urbit as their primary computer, you know, that would be, that would be a good a good sign. And what about uh, how do you guys make money? How does Urbit make money? How does Tuan? Yeah, how, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would clarify. Urbit does not Sorry. make money. Um, Talon currently has uh, a portion of the Urbit address space, which it sells and monetizes, and then long term, it's uh, business model is providing urbit related hosting services so you know you could uh you could keep your urbit as a, a virtual machine on one of our servers we wouldn't be able to touch it or you know mess with it but we would make sure that it was always online for you kind of like how Staking, staking as a service, like you basically are, what you guys are doing is promising uptime and accessibility and, and usefulness. I don't know the full nuance of, of staking as a service, but perhaps it's similar. I guess it's also just basically kind of like AWS in the sense that you just promise to be there. Right, 
though hopefully a lot simpler to use than AWS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, AWS is a bitch. So, Christian, I kind of want to better understand, like, okay, on my phone right now, I'm really plugged into both the Apple and the Google ecosystems. Oh, you you changed your phone to Grayscale, man. Yeah, I, I got you, I triple click and I can oh, well, switch between them. Welcome to the resistance. You got to <laughs> you gotta turn off the coon brain. Um, but, yeah, so I'm, like, I'm on my phone, right? And yeah. I'm trying I'm, – let's say in the future, like, this is kind of like my little, my little computer node. I'm going to connect to my personal Urbit server that's in my house, mm-hmm. like – is there going to be, like, mobile UXs for this? Like, do we need open source software to do yeah, it? Is sure. Be, like, what, what that, is that, like, kind of... That's that's the hope. I mean, with the... Uh, I, I don't know any open hardware phones off the top of my head, but... Purism? Like, all, all this stuff is getting really cheap, right? Open hardware uh, and open source software. So it's... Eventually, Urbit would like to, you know be at the marriage of of those two movements if you will and yeah you can use i mean everyone everyone at the or a lot of people at the urban offices they love like e-ink screens right they want they want really simple looking devices clean interfaces uh that do you know just a couple things and a couple things super well and so that's that that's how a lot of people hope to interact with Urbit in the future. I feel like I just don't have a lot of faith that that future is what people want. Sure. Well, I would say try try Urbit. Um, I mean, you you can always make you can always bring the party of I don't know uh, the current cloud web onto Urbit, and people could elect to use it, but. They could easily opt out of whatever parts of it they don't want. Whereas, you know, if you just have a, a MacBook today, you basically have no choice but to use some large centralized email server, uh, centralized social networking. Uh, and at the edge case, like probably centralized, uh, centralized like Bitcoin uh Bitcoin infrastructure, like you're probably not running your own node. You're probably using like a Bitcoin exchange or uh, some third-party blockchain uh, infrastructure company to to verify your transactions. So, you know, you want to be able to, to have as much of that on your own hardware as possible. Speaking about your own hardware, like what kind of hardware do you need to to run a personal com- like all the things that you're accustomed to on your own personal computer? Hmm, that's a good question. Maybe better posed for, uh, maybe better posed to one of the other Talon developers. But I think to just install Urbit, you need like two gigabytes of free space on a MacBook yeah, or a Linux machine. I bet it's dirt cheap. I bet you need like a forty dollar processor and a yeah. and a skinny it, little hard it drive. Can, it can run on like a a Raspberry Pi, mm-hmm. uh, whatever those are. Sure, but I mean that's not going to afford you everything that you want. Like th- you need some more computing power to run the Zoom call or sure, to like sure. record this stuff. Like, yeah, you know, so I mean maybe it, more than a Raspberry Pi, but yeah, mm-hmm. more more than that perhaps. But like definitely not my bash. not beyond the budget you currently have for yeah. your computer right like uh 
And if you need it, a word processor, a browser, and be able to run Zoom and record audio, you like collectively, you can you can get all of that equipment for under two hundred dollars by by far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is Probably it easier to run a, a Urbit kernel than it is to run an Ethereum node? Uh, well, I would say you can run an Urbit, and you cannot run an Ethereum node. So, I guess I'm I'm partial. Uh, to Urbit in that regard. Um, well, you can run an, Ur- an Urbit server. could get really, really small, right? Like it could be super low bandwidth. It, yes, it's, it's, it's yeah. very small. Yeah. So how does Bitcoin plus Urbit compete with a Turing complete blockchain? Uh, hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know. Huge Urbit, question. <laughs> Urbit, is, Urbit is real DeFi. Uh, use, use Bitcoin as money in peer-to-peer Urbit applications. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't don't offload your compute on an entire, you know, network of uh, of nodes. That that would be my intuition. Mm-hmm. I see that. That makes sense. That's kind of, this is kind of where Bitcoin kind of has its, its Web3 meme come out of, right? Uh, I mean, honestly, I'm not even that familiar with, like, Web3. Uh, well, that's because it doesn't exist yet, right? Like we're all trying, <laughs> we're all trying to figure out what it is. Right. But I would exactly. say that Urbit's Web three. I, I, I would say that I would say that Urbit plus Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. If I had to extrapolate what I think Web three is, I'd say that that's probably closer to what I see people using than the sort of host of DeFi, Ethereum based mm-hmm. Web three ish stuff today. But. I don't know. We'll we'll see. It just seems mm-hmm. it seems more real and tangible on Urbit. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we need Urbit to develop a little bit more, and and then everyone be able to wrap their brain around it. And I'm I'm hoping sure. people well, smarter than smarter than me as a podcast co-host can can have that conversation. Sure, I would invite all of your uh, podcast guests to go try an Urbit. Um, we are actually giving uh, blocks of planets or, or just – I shouldn't use jargon. Just blocks of Urbit addresses to uh, folks like you guys um, so that you can help your communities experiment with Urbit. So if you'd like, you can – Christian, I'll give you the opportunity. You can pick a promo code right now. <laughs> Make it something snappy. And, uh, it has to just be POV. POV, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, you, in like T minus a month, um, you can send out uh, to your followers like POV, uh, and they can come to our website and they can get a an urban address on on you. <laughs> so I guess this this does bring up one last like kind of tough question is like. You, you kind of alluded to the monetization path of like selling urban addresses, kind of like selling like website right. domains. Yeah. The situation. What is like, what does that kind of space look like right now? Uh, I mean, there's several, uh, there's several exchanges for urban addresses. There's urban.live, there's urban marketplace. There's a lot of people selling them just peer to peer. We don't sell them here. Uh, we, we sell uh, the root nodes of Urbit, sort of f- to fund, uh, you know, our development costs. Uh, but you can you can get an Urbit, uh, I guess, many places these days, um, and from and from POV Crypto. If uh, 
if we can get our act together soon. Well, the the fate of the decentralized world depends on it. So you well, yeah, it. yeah, it's like you know you gotta you gotta chill Bitcoin to your friends. <laughs> you gotta it's <laughs> it's these uh, these bottlenecks we work through just boosting people into these systems. I would say education is always you know one of the one of the greatest limiting factors. It's just how fast can you put the information into other people's heads about how this stuff works, why they want to use it. Cool. Well, Christian, this has been a very fascinating conversation. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I, I, I uh, I'm very grateful for you guys to have me on. Absolutely. I mean, we usually ask for people to uh, tell our audience where they can find them. Oh, no, sure. No, do you want to be found? Uh, you know, find me, find me on, find me on Urbit. <laughs> uh, I, I can give my Urbit ID. You can hit me up there. We'll, we'll throw it in the show notes. Very good, very good. Yeah. Otherwise, um, you know, I'm, I'll be at Bitcoin 2020. I'll, I'll give a shout out. I'm gonna be a rip in the curl with Tony Hawk, obviously. Go. <laughs> um, yes. Skate. Skate Urbit. <laughs> that's my. That's my message. Skate Urbit. Skate Bitcoin. Cool. Well, skate POV too. Skate POV. Yeah. And with that, you can find POV on Twitter at POV CryptoPod. Find me at CK underscore Snarks, David. You can find me at Trustless Date, both on Twitter and on Medium. Christian, thanks a bunch for coming on. Yeah, excellent, guys. Thank you so much. We'll see you around. Mm-hmm.